0: Hello, and welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Ayrsdale. On this episode, episode 11, we are joined by Jamie Lowe. Jamie is the author of the new book, Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of California's Wildfires, as well as a couple of other great books and amazing articles for the New York Times Magazine, among other publications. She's done a great story for this American life. And Jamie is one of the first people I thought of for the show when I came up with the podcast in the summer, because, you know, you want to talk to people who really have a tremendous amount of range and familiarity with the challenges and the prospects for California. And Jamie, her reporting and her experience as a native Californian, I thought framed that particular condition in a way that I always find really compelling. And hopefully you do too. It was a great conversation and I look forward to sharing it with you. Before we get there though, uh, just a quick vibe check for all of you listening. How are you? You all right? It's the holidays. We're we're almost at the holidays. It can be a very stressful time and I hope you're all faring okay. Just taking those deep breaths, those deep anxiety, assuaging breaths. I know it's not always easy to keep an even keel. Uh, It's been a crazy week in California in the news. I don't know if you guys heard about the crypto.com arena. I guess that's what the staple center is going to be called now. Crypto.com center or something like that. And you know, it got me pretty excited. I'll be honest. I, uh, I'm excited for the possibilities of what we can do around here. What is California HQ with a cryptocurrency exchange? If anyone wants to, um, buy my cat as an NFT, um, LC has volunteered to go on the market. I, the thing is I get to keep LC, but you get like some like sliver of DNA and a certificate of authenticity. And you can have exclusive rights to the cat from what is California headquarters. I mean, it used to be called what is California HQ. Now it's called the um, Crypto Monkey Studio at the uh, the Dogecoin Media Pavilion. I don't know. Just spitballing here. And I was trying to make a sustainable empire, you guys. Uh, anything I can do, all right? In the meantime, if you want to go ahead and ship in a few shekels at patreon.com slash whatiscalifornia to keep our podcast servers running and keep Elsie fed. All right. That would be great. So this week's guest is Jamie Lowe. Jamie is the author of the new book, Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of California's Wildfires. That is available wherever you get fine books. And it is a fine book. It's an excellent book. It is based in part on Jamie's reporting for the New York Times Magazine about female inmate firefighters in California, uh, particularly in Southern California And Jamie spent a lot of time with those inmate firefighters chronicling their work and chronicling the circumstances and the systems in which those inmate firefighters are incarcerated. And by extension, the book is kind of a bigger view of the carceral system in California and just how much the state depends on prison labor, the labor of incarcerated people over 170 years, really going back even further than that, we're talking centuries of prison labor, indentured servitude, or just outright slavery uh, in in California. It, it's pretty shocking. And I was stunned to learn the history of California's dependence on this labor, even to the present day. You go back to San Quentin, built by prison labor. I mean, you, They built the prison in which they wound up being incarcerated. The Pacific Coast Highway, prison labor. Basically, all of the most dangerous and perilous work that was done to build California over the last century and a half was prison labor or exploited labor of some kind or another. And flash forward to 2020, 2021, and the outbreak of wildfires around California, and it's no different. Incarcerated firefighters are doing a lot of the dirty work, along with Cal Fire and federal firefighters, too. But it's a huge influx. Of incarcerated men and women fighting these fires. They have professional training. uh, They have extraordinary skill, and yet they can't even get jobs when they get out of prison. They're paid a pittance for the grueling, backbreaking, and incredibly hazardous work that they do. So, this is a problem that Jamie examines in her book. And she looks at the past, the present, and examines the future, what some of the solutions might be for both the systems that employ and depend on firefighters uh, in a Time when wildfire season never ends, and also a system so dependent on incarcerated firefighters. The women in Jamie's book are heroes, just like any professional firefighter. Those women are out there risking everything, in some cases, giving their lives to protect property and civilian life wherever they're needed. And they should be regarded as heroes. And I think Jamie does a great job of contextualizing their struggles, contextualizing them as human beings, their lives, uh, where they've been, where they're going. And what we as Californians can do for those women uh, in return for their service. As always, you can drop me a line. Let me know what you thought of this episode. Let me know what you think of What is California. And just say hi at hello at com. You can follow us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia. You can subscribe to the Substack newsletter at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That's free. And it gets you a fresh podcast in your inbox every Thursday and fresh roundup of weekend links in your inbox every Friday. If you are here from the shout out in the LA times, essential California newsletter by Justin Ray. Thank you. Thank you to Justin for that shout out. And thank you, dear listener for tuning in. I hope this show is enlightening and illuminating and gratifying and all of the things that I find California to be. Um, I hope it's not too infuriating, which California can also be. And, uh, in any case, I appreciate you listening. I hope you'll subscribe and I hope you will share. And now here is me with Jamie Lowe on What is California? Enjoy. Jamie Lowe, welcome to What is California? so good to have you here. Why don't we start with a reading from your new book, Breathing Fire, female inmate firefighters on the front lines of California's wildfires out now from MCD FSG. Take it away.
1: After their morning run, I followed two crews in red buggies to the assignment for the day clearing brush from a fire road. We drove along the Pacific Coast Highway, past bleach-blonde moms running with strollers, surf camps, wetsuits drying on concrete walls, and the breaking waves of an endless Pacific Ocean. We turned left, inland to the top of the Cameron Nature Preserve, a hundred-acre canyon once owned by the director, James Cameron, who donated it to the city of Los Angeles, The fire road at the top of the mountain looked out over dry vegetation, what was rumored to be the compound of the NBA basketball player Reggie Miller and ocean waves. After stopping, the crew was instructed to tool up and carve out six feet of vegetation on either side of the fire road. This type of preventative measure would make the road a containment line, even before there was a fire. It widens the area of bare soil so that if one part of the canyon catches fire, it won't jump the line. That's the logic anyway. As fires change and their movement becomes less and less predictable, tactics like this one, which once worked, can be useless. If there's fuel, fires jump six lanes of freeway to find it. Fires don't care about preventative measures. But this is the work. This is what CAL FIRE has done for decades. So crews continue to do it. Crew 13-4 hacked away at sumac and sagebrush. A woman with a chainsaw cut through foliage. Another raked it, lifted the brush, and tossed it down the canyon. Then a second pair came through with sharp hoes and pulled up the roots. This went on, fast and furious, until the area was scraped down to mineral earth. One woman sang Remy Ma and Fat Joe's All the Way Up. She told me it was the crew's hiking song. Then she tossed what looked like a tree hundreds of feet down the ravine. The crews, lined up and working, looked like chain gangs without the chains. When the captain called tools down, the crews took a break for water. They drank from camelbacks and ate snacks from their lunch coolers. The work was exhausting, and the heat generated was enough to make them sweat through the several layers they were wearing. The physical expectation is high, and we're all breaking down. Right now, ibuprofen is my best friend, Sonia told me. I can say coming from the streets, when you're with your crew, that's your family. We may not like each other, but we're taking care of each other. Those disputes get left behind real quick. Then she added, but the pay is ridiculous. The seasonal salary for equivalent work by a USFS wildland firefighter is around $40,000. After restitution, Sonia would make significantly less, closer to $1,000 a year, depending on how many fires she worked. Even if she worked in California Conservation Corps, CCC, the Natural Resource Work Program, she'd make minimum wage. There are some days we are worn down to the core, and this isn't that different from slave conditions. We need to get paid more for what we do. When I asked her what it was like to fight fire, she said, you have to be aware of everything, every sound, the wind, the brush. You have to keep your head on a swivel.
0: That's Jamie Lowe reading from her new book, Breathing Fire, female inmate firefighters on the front lines of California's wildfires. It's out now. It's excellent. Jamie, welcome to What is California? So good to see you. Maybe we can kind of start with your California story. Where are you from originally? And um, what was your upbringing like?
1: Well, I was born in Oakland, California, at Oakland Kaiser. Um, And for 18 months, I lived in Berkeley with my family. When my parents got divorced, we moved to Los Angeles. And for the most part, I grew up in Los Angeles. So I feel close to both Northern California and Southern California, though I definitely grew up with a Southern California upbringing.
0: Yeah. One of the things you write in your book is this idea that Quote, if you live in California or are lucky enough to be from there, fire is a constant backdrop. End quote. We'll talk about the fire in just a second, but I really think that's an interesting framing. How or why does being a native Californian confer luck?
1: You know, I don't know, except that I've always felt like there's a certain amount of variety within the state where you can be in. Hundred different ecosystems and still be within the state, and you can. There's just sort of this endless uh, expanse of desert. There's this incredible thick Humboldt forest. the The variety of what you can see and experience in terms of its sort of natural environments is um, it's kind of ridiculous. But then also the the cities themselves, the urban landscapes, what you see aesthetically in Southern California versus the Bay Area versus Sacramento versus craftsman houses versus the Central Valley. There's this diversity of, you know, sight and sound and people. And I think I've always really valued that. And that's not to say that other states don't have it. But California has always seemed to have this rich tapestry and it's everywhere.
0: Aside from the obviously increased prominence of fire in California, which we'll again talk about in a moment, in what ways have you observed your home areas of California change over the years? And how do you feel about the changes?
1: I think uh, there's a couple of things that feel dramatically different. Inequality, income inequality specifically, is a drastic change, I think. Um, there's much, much more poverty in the state that is more noticeable. It's growing at rapid speeds. There are like actual slums that you can walk through and see, and maybe slums is the wrong word, but... Um, you know, encampments that go on for miles and miles, which is true in most urban areas and in, the, in a lot of the um, Central Valley, too, that kind of poverty, it didn't exist to the same extent when I was growing up. And that was decades ago. And so I think the effects of some of the governing of uh, Ronald Reagan, I think the stripping of social services have been, you know, now enacted. In, the, in what we're seeing and experiencing. I think that there is an inaccessibility issue in terms of just education, environment, housing. I think about my junior high, which was a Boston school that was sort of right on the border of South Los Angeles. And that school is now one of the top schools in LAUSD, which at the time, you know, it really was kind of like... Eh, it's a school. It's fine. It's a junior high. We all went there. It wasn't like, you know, you applied. The likelihood of getting in was like pretty good. It wasn't this like crazy, you know, knife wielding competition to try and get your child into a, you know, the school. And now somehow, you know, LACES is like this great school, which all of my, you know, I'm still friends with a lot of people from junior high. And a lot of our, you know, we sort of marvel at that. We're like, what? How did that happen? Um, And, you know, that's true also of the UC system. It's a lot harder to get into any UC. When I went to school, I was maybe one of two people from my high school, which had 3,000 people in it that went to UC Davis, because no one really paid attention to Davis. Davis was more of a Northern California school. It was kind of sleepy because it was known more for agriculture. It was like not Berkeley, not LA. It wasn't glitzy in any way. But now Davis is really hard to get into. And I'm glad for that, but it's really, it's expensive. It's not the intention of what the UCs should be. The UCs should be for everyone. They were this, you know, incredible um, academy, I think, that was public education for anyone who needed and wanted it, and they should be more accessible.
0: What's your earliest memory of California? Why do you think that memory stuck with you?
1: It's probably a smell, and it's probably um, like the smell of the Berkeley Hills, and so maybe that's a eucalyptus or a jasmine or some type of a blossom, because I know that um, whenever I've been away from California for a long time and I go back, it's the first thing that I really respond to, and especially when I'm in the Bay Area, and so you know, and like you said, we'll talk about fires later, but when I've been in the Bay Area recently and it's been a different kind of atmosphere, it's been hotter, it's been, the air has been really different and those smells are really different. um, That's changed dramatically too. Like the types of flowers that are flowering, whether or not they're flowering at all because it's so dry has changed.
0: In what ways, in addition to the smell of the hills, for instance, like in what ways has geography impacted or influenced what you do or who you are?
1: I think, and this maybe goes back to the question about why it's lucky to be from California um and when some of my earliest memories is that my dad would take us to um Yosemite to just outside of Wawona. And so we never went to the valley. And we would always kind of walk around and and see these creeks and rivers and the stones and the, you know, these giant rocks and then these really, really giant rocks and these trees and these really, really giant trees. And they allow, and also the smells there too, but they allow for this kind of shaping of, not to sound woo-woo, but the spirit where you can kind of be completely burritoed by the environment around you where it just envelops you and you're just inside of it and you just exist and everything around you is like so much bigger so much more important so much more dominant and it's so clear that it is what makes up the state like these things are gonna you know no matter how much destruction we do these things will survive in some way eventually they'll be there in some form. Because Half Dome and El Capitan are not going to just fall apart because humans make that happen.
0: As you moved into journalism and reporting on California, what did your work reveal to you about the state that you found especially compelling or even surprising? Any consistent themes or ideas that you came up on?
1: I think just how many different people I wanted to talk to who were from California and who represented all of the different like sort of facets of the state. And I think that, you know, that can be anyone from uh, an industrial beekeeper to a local beekeeper and to the beekeeper who is the son of a legislator who shaped the progressive policies of the state. Um, I feel like you know, in that same story, I got to talk to several cops who were on the agricultural task force. And I was like, whoa, like, there's a whole ag task force that, you know, I'm not that interested in propagating cop stories in general, but then hearing what they dealt with was fascinating. I mean, they had like all of these robberies where somebody would hike Heist. They would <laughs> these almond butter truck heists where they would take the trucks and then they'd have to GPS <laughs> the almond butter heists, which were going to the Long Beach port. And it was actually like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of almond butter. And these guys were in charge of figuring out where the truck was going, who was taking the almond butter. Like, you know, there were these kind of silly, you know, narratives that were great compliments to the very, very, very serious ones like climate catastrophe, mass incarceration, you know, homelessness and um, the things that are very capital I important.
0: Who are some of the Californians you've met or encountered in your work who have really stuck with you and why? What compels you about them and their lives?
1: One person who really compelled me was uh, Joe Trainer, who was this sort of California legacy. And he was incredible. He was completely devoted and obsessed with beekeeping. And he had, you know, when I visited him and interviewed him for the story about beekeepers, he had journal upon journal upon journal stacked in his office and he had cut out all of these articles that he had written. He printed out several of his newsletters for me and he was super concerned about, you know, our conversation and his wife had told him to go and provide food. And so he went and got hoagies for us. And it was this very deliberate and serious way of kind of inviting me onto this world of beekeeping where he was also being honored by a potluck with all of the other beekeepers of the Central Valley. And he was someone who was really divergent actually from the typical culture and what you would expect of beekeepers in Bakersfield and Fresno in that he comes from a line of very progressive policymakers, and he really wanted to hold on to that. He was worried about his fellow beekeepers finding out that, you know, he had anything to do with any type of, like, liberal politics because they had different politics. And so he he wanted to just sort of keep that side of his life and personality very separate. Um, but I found him so warm and inviting. And it's true of most people that you end up talking to. I mean, the last interview that I did was with a a hatchery guy who runs a salmon hatchery outside of Stockton. And I went with them when they were trucking salmon to the San Francisco Bay. And so we talked for Hours about, you know, how he raises salmon, how he takes the salmon to the bay. And it's this incredibly nuanced and complicated issue for California. There's very little, if almost no, you know, quote unquote wild salmon runs left because the rivers have basically been dammed into submission. And this is one sort of apocalyptic way of dealing with it is they truck salmon.
0: Breathing Fire is most immediately about the lives of women inmates who fight wildfires in California, like life before, during and after prison. How did you find this story?
1: Uh, I found it in the L.A. Times, actually, the paper of record. Um, (laughs) I so I actually grew up reading the L.A. Times every day and I still find it. um, I mean, even though it's now probably a third of the size it was when I first was reading it. Um, I was at my mom's house. I was home, and I was reading the California section, which I think is probably, you know, the best section, actually, of the paper. And there was this short article about uh, Lynn Jones, who was a woman who um, died and she was a female incarcerated firefighter. And she had died fighting a fire um, that day or the day before. And it was a fire in, in uh, Malibu. It was called the in Fire. And I read this article and I was struck by two things very specifically. And the first thing was that I, I knew those mountains really well. I mean, I know the Santa Monica Mountains. I had been on those trails and I had no idea that there were these incarcerated fire camps throughout the state. And at the time there were 44 camps and about 3,000 incarcerated member crew members who were out on fires fighting fire. Um and the second thing that struck me and this maybe was more personal and emotional was that this woman, Shauna Lynn Jones, she was this, this person who was essentially reduced to a couple sentences in this article, and they were all tied to her crime and the fact that she was from Lancaster. And there was nothing else about her. There wasn't anything from her mom. There wasn't anything about what it was like for her to be in the camps, um, You know what her childhood was like, who she was. And I really wanted to know more about her, and I also really, really wanted to know more about the camps.
0: And these women are kind of a nexus connecting bigger California stories, whether it's the exploitation of prison labor, racial and economic inequality, which you mentioned earlier, climate peril, the futility, even danger of sprawl, the broken... Criminal justice system, particularly sentencing. Um, this prison system is beyond dehumanizing, and there's neither incentive nor imperative, or political will to fix it. Did you sense these connections before you started reporting? Kind of after you read that article, but before you started reporting, or did you discover that along the way?
1: That's a great question. You know, once you dig into a story, those sort of like multidimensional layers just start folding themselves in and you see that they're all connected to these other much bigger topics and that it's, you know, that there's this thread and narrative and there are these characters, but that they all kind of represent different topics because you want to bring them in and you want to talk about them. And I'm not sure that that doesn't happen organically, that sometimes just those are the topics that you want to include. Obviously, these things are completely tethered to this particular narrative, but I also really wanted to write about those things.
0: For listeners who may not know, uh, Jamie, can you walk us through some of the ways that California has exploited inmates for some of the most dangerous and grueling work in the state's history up to and including wildfire fighting?
1: Sure. I mean, it really starts, there's um, a book called City of Inmates by Kelly Little Hernandez that um, really dials in on um, how Los Angeles was formed by caging people and then exploiting their labor. And so she really talks a lot about the vagrancy laws, where if you are out after a certain time and you are drunk or, you know, that you would be jailed and then auctioned off the next day. And for the most part, these were native Californians, mostly poor people. It was mostly people who did not, who were not, you know, landowners or or people who were um, establishing themselves in terms of agriculture or who had a lot of money. And they would then exploit this labor by using it to, you know, build agriculture to as you know Sunset Boulevard was used with labor for that the PCH was used with San Quentin labor and these you know crews the road crews is sort of the beginning of that and then it evolved from road crews into these camps that would do very dangerous work in the mountains like every It's if you're not from California, you don't know about mountain roads. But the mountain roads that are sometimes in the Santa Monica Mountains, in the Sierras, in if you're going across Yosemite and not necessarily on a main road, those roads can be circuitous in ways that induce a lot of vomiting and terrifying behavior. (laughs) But um, those were built by, for the most part you know, inmate crews, and the road crews lived in these camps, and when World War II happened and a lot of uh, able-bodied young men went off to war, these road crews then filled in as firefighters, and that's how the firefighting crews started, and that was in 1946, and then they folded in women in in the early 1980s. Because there were um, certain sentencing benefits that if you volunteer, quote unquote, volunteer to be on a firefighting crew, then you could get time shaved off of your sentence. And women wanted the opportunity to be able to do that.
0: This dehumanization, or working for you know dollars per day, I mean, it wasn't always necessarily this way in California, and it didn't have to be this way. You write. About the former women's prison at Tehachapi, for example, where rehabilitation and reentry were taken very seriously in the middle of the twentieth century, what happened to that idea? Why did that go away?
1: I think that that was a really novel approach, and it was um, it was much smaller because it only dealt with women and it was this one prison and it was almost this utopic vision that was brought on by these kind of well-to-do um, elite women who wanted to try and shape and help quote quote help women who had been uh, arrested for various different you know having like having been a prostitute or whatever they were arrested for. Um, I think that it's one of the few examples of actual rehabilitation being folded into what a a prison is and I think the rest of the examples of prison are very much centered on punishment and I think that it's it's really if you're taking history and however many prisons and jails exist it's like you know Tehachapi was probably like 0.5 percent of what that those systems looked like And so it's, it's not, I think with, with, it was a good example of, of one way of trying to fold in people into communities and trying to actually address people with social services and to work, you know, there was a newspaper, there were plays, there were reviews of those plays in the newspaper. And it was kind of this. This fascinating world that existed, and then and one of the things actually that was very interesting was that the wardens and also the the people who ran all of the prisons made the decisions were all women, and that's actually very rare in terms of how state prisons are run right now. I actually think the warden for CDCR is a woman, um, but. We're talking about a bureaucracy that is so entrenched in so many wrongdoings and so many inhumane practices that it's kind it's we've come so far from any sense of rehabilitation. Um, So it's really hard to kind of even include that. And a lot of the people who I interviewed really just call the whole correctional facility, the uh, department, CDC, and they don't include R, which stands for rehabilitation.
0: So where do these women inmates who have fought wildfires in California go when they're released? What are their options?
1: So they can actually work for um, federal wildland firefighting crews. So they can actually become uh, hotshots. They can be helitechs. They can be on engines that are in these kind of remote wildland areas. And one of the women that I followed, Whitney, actually did she just finished her i think it was her fourth season actually as a free world firefighter for a federal for federal crews she did her first with the Hotshot tahoe tahoe hot shots. her second was a um an engine crew and this is her second helitech season um so that's possible it's improbable because you have to retake all of the um tests that you've taken if you've taken them when you've the ones that you've taken in prison, you have to redo all the training, you have to basically, you know, have the ability to go back to school, to, in a certain sense, and go through all of these paperwork, and and actually apply to these different agencies and have enough support to do that. And very few people who have to go through reentry can actually do that. You know, it's hard enough when you are just, it's a a traumatic event to leave prison or jail. There is very little in terms of support, and it's really hard to then negotiate trying to get a job in one of the hardest fields there is. There are no positions, or there definitely weren't when I started reporting at CAL FIRE and municipal agencies. That's sort of changed, but very minimally. How? So uh, Governor Newsom uh, signed a bill which was passed last year, AB 2147, which was specifically um, written to expedite expungement for formerly incarcerated firefighters. It's It's a step in the right direction. It acknowledges that something has to be done, but it's also kind of toothless and it doesn't address everyone who's been a formerly incarcerated firefighter um there are firehouses that exist on various different um like there's a san quentin firehouse and there was an incarcerated firefighter who was lobbying for ab 2147 and he doesn't actually even qualify for the expedited expungement the way that the legislation is written and there's you know You have to appeal, you have to go to a judge and ask for the expedited expungement. A DA can appeal if a judge grants you that. And DAs are actively fighting these. I mean, there's, I think, been 11 formerly incarcerated firefighters that I know of who have actually benefited from this. And that's great. That's 11 people who would not have expedited expungements. But it's not a huge number. The other problem is that the agencies are very historically discriminatory and ultimately they have hiring authority and nobody watching over who they're hiring. And they can still do a criminal background check and everything shows up, even with an expedited expungement. There's no data in place either to show who's benefiting from the bill. So we'll never know if it's working or not working.
0: Let's pivot to an article that you wrote for the New York Times Magazine this year about homelessness in Los Angeles and more specifically Venice. What's your personal connection to Venice?
1: So my mom grew up near Venice. My grandma's house was there and she went to Venice High. And when I was in high school, um, I didn't... wasn't good at high school. I didn't go very often in general. I mean, I did what I needed to do and um, it was enough, but it definitely, uh, high school was a tough time. And I was also, I mean, I should say like the book before this is all about being bipolar and I was hospitalized at UCLA for about a month. And so within that, space um i didn't actually go to school very often and i would just take the bus to the beach and i spent a lot of time at venice beach i don't know exactly what i did but i always felt very much at home there like i think i just kind of would walk around on the boardwalk i think like there were people that i would recognize and kind of talk to and i I just spent a lot of time walking back and forth and feeling very alone. I don't think I was necessarily alone, but it was a place that I could be alone and not necessarily feel alone.
0: Uh, You write in the article, I'll quote directly, what was once a community with many income levels now has basically two strata, the wealthy and the homeless. Venice's unhoused residents have formed dozens of encampments, several of which abut houses, worth seven or eight figures that occupy lots where modest bungalows once stood, more than one quarter of the nation's homeless population lives in California. End quote. What have you seen since this article came out that has possibly indicated any improvement in the situation or change in the scenario in Venice or around Los Angeles?
1: There are so many dimensions and layers and it seems to change dramatically uh, from day to day. Um, but right before that story was filed, you know, and it like Sheriff Villanueva, who is this sort of evil Trumpian, I mean, he's lawless. He basically has said, I'm not going to enforce a mask mandate. I'm going to, he is, he has, you know, there, if you look up, Sheriff gangs, you know, there's an entire investigation as to whether or not there are gangs within a sheriff's department. And he essentially used the Venice Boardwalk as a photo opportunity to kind of reclaim the streets. And he's going to, you know, shake things up and clean everything up and get rid of all the encampments. And There was a lot of movement that happened directly after that because there was so much attention. And I think that they did actually end up placing a lot of people in various different temporary shelters or Project Room Key or Project Home Key. And there were people who left. I don't know that they're going to stay away from camping there. I think, like, I, I don't know that we have the answer to that yet. I don't know that there are long-term solutions that have been presented. I don't know that the that people have actually been placed in places they consider homes and that they can call homes and that they can then get services from and get, like, jobs from and, and actually live in. I think that there are still uh, there's still a lot of political maneuvering to by some homeowners to completely get rid of any anybody who is without a house without necessarily providing any services, and I think that leaves a lot of people just sort of being shuffled around and pushed out to different. Places, um, you know, a lot of times there are "quote unquote" activists who are housed who want, you know, no more encampments. Who will say, "Oh, but there's plenty of space south of the airport, or there's plenty of space in the Antelope Valley, or there's plenty of space, you know, relocating entire communities into somewhere else where there's like, oh, does no one live there, or are you like?" Why why is that the solution? That's the solution for you. It's the classic NIMBY argument. And so, you know, I don't think that that sentiment has disappeared at all.
0: You alluded to solutions just a moment ago, and we've talked about two pretty monumental problems, obviously, in terms of wildfire and homelessness in California. And I'm curious what you think the biggest challenge California faces is and what the solution might be. How can that challenge be surmounted?
1: Well, you know, um, I have very unrealistic utopic dreams that I think. This is the place for <laughs> unrealistic utopic dreams. Hey, empty those jails, put people to work, house people in those jails, make them something that is livable, plant some trees, like, redo the architecture of jails and prisons. I feel like through the course of res- of reporting this book, I embraced and learned more about abolitionism in terms of prison policy. And the idea is not necessarily that you have no one incarcerated or that you completely tear down everything, but you kind of do and you kind of have to um, build back a better community. And I think the way to do that is to say we have these giant structures that are actually... Destructive and detrimental to our community and society. And I don't think that obviously housing homeless people in prisons is a terrible idea. You want to have, you know, beautiful housing and beautiful homes for everyone. But I think there is a way to do that. And I think that, um, you know, part of that is actually infringing on the California dream um, of like this expansive space and these horizon lines that go forever and there aren't like super tall buildings everywhere you know there isn't density but I think obviously we need density we need to say I need to say to like my parents okay you live in a single family home and you're two people now and you don't need that and they'll never listen to me like that's not that's not gonna happen but There are a lot of people in that situation, I think, who I think need to kind of embrace this future, which is actually right now, which is that we're, we need to house people. We need to acknowledge that um, the way our state runs is not effective for our state anymore. You know, you're in a mega drought, you're going to have mega floods, you have mega fires, you know. I'm still waiting for Southern California to possibly have a fire season because they really haven't had theirs yet. And it's not without possibility. You know, the Wolseley fire happened in early November. Northern California, because their fire season starts earlier, sometimes gets a ton of coverage. And then Southern California, all of a sudden, like, nobody's paying attention to it
0: it sounds like what you're saying is that the challenges are kind of monolithically braided together and the way they can be surmounted is just by you know a generation of leaders with political will to make a change.
1: Yeah, but i think then if you if you really dial in even more you're like well what is that change specifically? And will the
0: change impose itself on us or do we i mean we don't even, we're not going to have a choice in the end, right?
1: Well, I think that we need to do both, right? I think that we're not going to have a choice because we already don't have a choice. There are so many people who are already affected by all of these changes. And then I think at the same time, we have to demand uh, more equality. For a long time, you know, a stereotypical idea of what California might be we'd have this like Hollywood glamour. And now it's the Silicon Valley glamour. And it's the sheen of wealth and success and privilege and manifest destiny and gold. And I think that we need to acknowledge that that is actually absolute destruction, that for the majority of people, that that is a detrimental vision. um, And it's not even something that Really exist. What do you mean a
0: detrimental vision?
1: It's not good for the majority of people. I mean, I'm a lover of movies, so I can't say that I'm mad at the entire studio system. Um, But I think that, you know, idolizing celebrity and imagining yourself to be one is actually can be very destructive. I think finding the people who are actually making the state work is much more useful in terms of finding ideals.
0: With that in mind, we end every episode with the same question for all guests. Who is your favorite Californian, past or present, and why?
1: I'm going with a fictional group of people. This There was a Spanish poet who wrote about this region before the Spanish actually came to Baja, California, and he described Calafia. And that was this, you know, vision of an island full of Amazonian women who were these warriors and were these strong, you know, incredible women. And I had like this whole paragraph that I wrote about it for the book and I could not wrestle my way into putting it in there, but it stayed with me, this idea of what California would be, because they that's actually what the state is named after, is Calafia. And I like that group of imagined women, that there are these strong women who absolutely fight and survive. But in the poem, they don't necessarily fight. They're oppressed. But in my version, they don't. They're not oppressed.
0: Jamie Lowe. Thank you so much for being here. really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much, Stu. I appreciate you.
0: That's the show. Jamie Lowe. Thank you to Jamie for being here. And thank you to Jamie for putting up with my uh, technical ineptitude. We had to talk a couple of times for this episode uh, for some technical difficulties, resolve those, but we got it fixed and sounds great. And I'm really, really glad that we had a chance to talk about her work and her book. Breathing Fire: Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of California's Wildfires That Is Out Now from mcd FSG, and I Highly Recommend It. What Is California is produced, edited, and hosted by me, Stu Van ayersdale Our theme music is by Sound Supreme. You can find us on Twitter at What California, and you can subscribe to the Substack newsletter for free at WhatIsCalifornia.substack.com. That will get you the new episode in your inbox every Thursday and a fresh roundup of weekend links in your inbox every Friday. You can support What Is California on Patreon at patreon.com whatiscalifornia. If you wanna chip in a few shekels to keep the cloud servers running, keep our headquarters cat fed, meow. You can also email me anytime, hello at whatiscalifornia.com. I would love to hear from you. If you wanna get in touch with any ideas for guests or recommended reading or just some comments, thoughts, questions, Hello at What is California will get you the answers. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. And if you liked What is California, please, please, please consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. That is a wrap on episode 11. Thank you so much as always for listening. I'll see you next time. Until then, remember, as always, keep your eye on the bear.